0: All right, so we have been in the series over this Easter season, and it's a, uh, I guess we're calling it the Gospel According to series, and so we've been looking, the last few weeks we've been looking at the Gospel through a very subjective lens, okay? And a few weeks ago, uh, the series kicked off with Tim Deering, and Tim Deering, if you guys were here, um, Tim Deering spoke on the Gospel According to Peter. Um, The following week, uh, Jay spoke on the Gospel, it's kind of like the... The anti-gospel, according to Pontius Pilate. Um, and then last week, Justin did the gospel to Philemon. Um, and if you're getting the rhythm of, of peas, um, this week we're going to look at the gospel according to Philip. Um, interesting thing about Philip is, there's is not, like, not much out there about Philip. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, all, all that's in about Philip is he's mentioned. He's mentioned in the list of disciples. Um, and so we're mainly going to be in the Gospel of John. So if you want to take your text, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 1. Um, there's three small um, tidbits of Philip, um, but it's, it's enough information that we can get a gospel according to Philip. Um, there is a Philip in Acts, um, but it's actually a different Philip. Um, and Philip, the, the Apostle Philip, he is mentioned in Acts, but it's only, again, he's mentioned as one of the disciples and um, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come in Acts chapter 1. Um, but Before we read, uh, I thought it would be a good idea for us to, to kind of stop and pause, because um, like I said, we've, uh, we've looked at the gospel through a very subjective lens. Like, it's a very much of, like, it's, it's the gospel, um, which is this broad concept that comes at real people, and it clashes with their story. And so the gospel is this very subjective thing. And so I want to ask us, in a very objective, objective way, what, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Um, and we're going to, interestingly, the Apostle Paul defines the gospel a few times in the New Testament in a very objective way. Um, the first way I, wanna, I want us to read this 1 Corinthians 15, which is where Paul defines the objective gospel. Um, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Okay, so this is the apostolic gospel. Paul, in, in the New Testament, talks about the gospel in, in very subjective terms. Okay, but right here, Paul is going to define the gospel as the apostolic the gospel, the gospel that he received, the the minimum apostolic gospel that he received, and he preaches um, to the the you know, the first churches in the New Testament, and so the first believers, um, it's the gospel that they're being saved with. If you hold fast to the word I preached you, unless you believed in vain. So here he's going to spell off the gospel. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Again, as of first importance what Paul received and what he preached, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, to, to Peter. Um, so, a lot of times we kind of take this—at least from what I've seen—we take this verse, verse uh, three, which he died for our sins, and we're like, "Oh, that's the gospel—that Jesus died for the sin for our sins." That's part of the gospel, but that's not the gospel. I love what Paul does here. What Paul does here is he he takes it in a very story format that. The Messiah, that the Christ, he lived, he died, he was buried, he was risen, he, he appeared, and you continue reading 1 Corinthians, it's he ascended, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, he's the Lord of the whole world. Like, it's the story of Jesus is the gospel, and it's the story that is in accordance with the scriptures. What Paul is saying here is not one or two proof texts, but the whole story of Israel, starting in Genesis 1 all the way through the Old Testament into the life, to the birth and life and ministry of Jesus, the story of Israel finds its climax, its fulfillment, its completion in the story of Jesus of Nazareth. That is the gospel. It's not just one or two proof texts. It's literally the whole story finds its completion in the face of Jesus of Nazareth. So that is the gospel. And it includes sin. It includes our brokenness, and the implications of it is just, as we've seen in the subjective Gospels, you can't really define it, but this is the objective, the objective Gospel. Um, Another way that Paul defines the Gospel, um, and so a lot of times we, when we preach the Gospel and we share the Gospel, we usually use different methods of persuasion, and methods, methods are good, but it, methods are bad when the, the method that we use becomes the actual gospel in, its, in and of itself. So you think of, and we miss the story. It, we miss the story, and it, the gospel is just these propositional stuff that we submit our minds to. Um, like, for example, Romans Road, like that's, that's a method. It's not the gospel in and of itself. The Romans Road, um, four spiritual laws, like all these different methods that we use, they're good, but without the story of Christ, it's, it's not the gospel. It's just, it's, It's just propositional truth. Um, Another way that Paul does it, and so you think of Romans Road. Romans Road starts in Romans 3. I would exhort us to, if you want to preach the gospel, start in the beginning of Romans in verse 1. Um, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures con- concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so Jesus. So the, the, what Paul is saying here, the gospel is basically the announcement as an apostle, as an apostle to announce Jesus, the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, a real person who was an heir of King David, Okay, and this person is now declared to be the Son of God, the Messiah, in power because of his resurrection. And now, if if you keep reading, it talks about we as apostles go out and and we ask for the obedience of of faith for all people, of all the nations, of the whole world. Like Jesus is the Son of God in power. Declared to be that because of his resurrection. And now he claims the loyalty and allegiance of the whole world is basically what Paul is saying. Like that is the gospel. And it's a little bit different than 1 Corinthians 15. It's more of a like, um, there's still the kingly, uh, it's more of like Jesus is the king in this passage. Jesus is the king um, who was an heir from King David and now is the the lord of the whole world. And so I hope what you're getting from this, this little, um, the objective gospel, is the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King of Israel. Jesus is the Lord of the whole world. It's the person, and work of him. His death, his resurrection. That is the gospel. It's the face of Jesus, okay? And so I want to remind us that if Jesus is not at the center, you don't have the gospel, Okay, the implications of that, the implications of that includes us, includes our brokenness, includes reconciliation. But at the the, the core of the gospel is Jesus Himself. Okay? The gospel is this is this very objective thing, and at the core of it is Jesus. And it's the idea that Jesus God has done something in, in that in history and, and which of through what, what God has done, the whole world is a new place. Jesus is the king of the world. Jesus is the Lord of the world. The whole world is a new place because what Jesus has done, what God has done in and through Jesus. Um, so little rabbit trail. I, I just, I've read this recently. It's just very fascinating. You read John chapter 1. I'm going to start at the beginning. But John chapter 1 where it talks about the word. It talks about the logos. It talks about the word becoming flesh. Becomes, it, it talks about the, um, the, the word tabernacling with us. That idea screams Genesis Exodus. It screams the creation story. That what John is getting at is the creation story. And what is just so fascinating, you go to John chapter 20 and you go to uh, Easter morning and the fact that Jesus has risen from the grave, you read John, John chapter 20, it screams new creation. That God is doing this new thing in and through what Jesus accomplished at the cross through his death and resurrection. That is the gospel. And it's these, like, mind-blowing concepts. I've been, like, studying this for the last, like, two years, and I still, it's just, like, not the way that we typically think as Americans. But God, in and through Jesus, has done this thing, and by which is, well, has done this thing, and now the whole world is this new place, that Jesus is the Lord of the whole world, and he is calling everyone to repent and to follow him. That's the gospel. Got it? I just threw a lot of I threw a lot of stuff at you, and it's just something I felt like we should pause and like look at the gospel. And the gospel comes at people in very subjective ways, and we're going to look at today through through the story of Philip. So. Okay, so. Oh, and actually, um, kind of going back, and if you guys have come here for a while, you know, you've heard Jay say this. Um, I need the gospel more than I've ever needed the gospel before. Like today, I need the gospel just as much as I needed it back then. Okay? It's because the gospel is this thing that calls us to change the way we view the world, to change the way we view relationships, the way we view just issues in the world, and the way that we view the world. So without Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, you don't have the gospel. So what is the good news according to Philip? We're going to look at Philip today. Um, Okay, so we're actually going to start in verse 43. John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day... because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So this story, this is like the, where Philip comes on the scene. Like I said, John, there's only like three. We're going to look at the three little stories we have of Philip. Philip isn't even the main character here. Like all we have is, is Jesus found Philip and said, come follow me. But it's just, it's awesome that Philip, like, Philip comes on the scene, and what does he say? He goes to, he goes to uh, Nathaniel, and he says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets spoke of. Like, this is who we've been waiting for. This is who we as Israelites, as Jewish people, we have been waiting for the Messiah, and I have found him. Come, come and see him. Like, what a way for Philip to come on the scene and be like, I found the Messiah. I found him of who the, the Torah and the prophets spoke of. He's here. He's from Nazareth. And, and you know, we can speculate, like, why, why, does, why does Nathaniel say, oh, can anything good come from, from Nazareth? Um, but what we do know is that Jews, and, and us too, we knew that the Messiah was supposed to come from Where? Bethlehem, right? It was supposed to come from the city of David, and Jesus does come from the city of David. He was born in Bethlehem. And and so Philip, he is he's just a small character in the story, but like what he says, how he starts off, who Philip is, it's this guy who gets it. He gets it. And not only does Philip get it, everyone in the first chapter, like they get it. It's just it's so interesting. Look at look at verse 29, you see John the Baptist say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, John the Baptist says in verse 36, behold the Lamb of God. Um, in verse 40 or 41, Simon said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Um, and then Philip, we have found who the prophets and, and Moses spoke of. And then at the end of, of chapter 1, Nathaniel says, he, It's just Jesus being na- named over and over. Nathaniel says, in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. It's just so fascinating that the disciples, they get it. Philip gets it. It's like, G, like Jesus is, is receiving all of this, like, this acknowledgement of his true identity. The disciples get it. But what we will see is the disciples, they, they don't get it. Philip doesn't get it. When we will see that. Turn, turn forward to uh, John chapter 6 the story that uh, we are all pretty familiar with, Uh, chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Um, We could stop right there. The story goes on. We know that Jesus feeds 5,000 people, um, just men. Um, It would be more than 5,000 because of the women and children. Um, So Jesus, we read that Jesus asked Philip, where can we buy bread to feed these people? Um, and it makes sense because they're at the Sea of Galilee. Um, we know that Philip is from Bethsaida, um, a town you know, right along the Sea of Galilee. So he asked Philip, where can we buy bread for these people? And you would think, you would think that Philip would get it. Like, oh, here's Jesus, the guy that I just declared to be the guy, the Messiah, the guy that I've just witnessed turn water into wine, the guy that I've witnessed, multiple healings up at this point. And Jesus is asking me, where can we get bread for these people? And you would think Philip would get it. Philip doesn't get it. The only thing Philip can think of, like and Philip, instead of thinking in terms of, of um, where, he thinks of how. Like, oh, like boss, how, how are we going to get, what are you, are you crazy 200 denarii worth are, isn't even going to be enough. To, and a denarii is like a, a fair wage for a, for a day's work for a, day, for a worker. And so a 200 denarii, it'd be just a little over like half a year. Um, and so it was, the point is, though, that it's just not even that huge amount of money would be able to feed this, this large of crowd. And Philip, it's not, In Philip's mind, it's not even like, um, well, I know this place in Bethsaida. No, it's like, there's no way Jesus like, it's not even a contemplation. It's like his, his response off the bat is like, are you kidding me? There's, we're not going, there's, we're not going to be able to feed these people. And, and we read Jesus, it says, Jesus said this to test him. Okay. And, and when we read that, at least when I read it, I think, oh, is Jesus trying to like trap him? Is he trying to, to test him? No, Jesus isn't testing him to like shame him or trap him in a corner. It's, by God, when God tests His children, it's opening up a door for His children to realize their lack and to lean on Jesus, to lean on God's grace and to lean on God's sufficiency. It's like Jesus. Knew, it says that Jesus knew what was he, what He was going to do, but He tests Philip. Because the the faith that Philip declared in chapter one is a faith that Jesus wants to go from here to here, for the, for it to hit the, for the rubber to hit the road. That it's an open door from Jesus, for for Philip to place his faith in action. And 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 not only this is, this is interesting too. Not only does Philip, he should have got it from like Jesus's miracles that he's seen. But Philip is this Jewish man who would have went through the Jewish schools from the age of six on, literally memorized probably the whole Old Testament, depending on how far he went in the Jewish school. And, and as a Jewish man with Jewish thought, when Jesus says, where can we buy bread for these people? Uh, Philip should have thought Numbers chapter 11, because it, it completely echoes where Moses is asking God, how can we feed these people? How can we feed these great people? And so Philip, from every single angle, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't get who Jesus is. He, it's like he gets it, but he doesn't. And you know what? It's easy for me. It's easy for me to stand up here and like kind of like, hey, Philip, you didn't get it. You, you, how could you not get it? But you know what? I can't even count the number of times that I've been a disciple in this situation where I don't get it. And the long... The, the, older I get and the more studying I do, the more I hear my own voice, whether I'm preaching or I'm teaching our students at Amplify, the more I hear my voice and the truth that I'm declaring, the more I realize I don't actually believe it. I tell tell our students, I I reassure them in their identity in Christ and, and just exhort them with truth and who they are in Christ. And I'm like, don't believe the lies that the enemy tells you about yourself or that culture tells you about yourself or that you can't act a certain way. And I find myself believing the same lies about myself. And it's like, I get who Jesus is. I get who he is, but I don't get it. Because my faith stays here. It doesn't transform my heart. It doesn't call me in the deeper devotion of who Jesus is. Like, it, the, the revelation of Jesus and a deeper knowledge of who he is, it doesn't transform my heart. And the more I've f- realized, you know what, I'm no different than Philip. I probably would have reacted more strongly towards Jesus if I was Philip. And so I just want to, before we move on, testing of God's children. It's not that Jesus is trying to shame Philip. It's not that, that uh, he's trying to trap Philip. He's giving Philip a door to place his faith and for his faith to come from here to here. For his faith to make a difference in Philip's life. Um, you guys can turn ahead to John chapter 14. This is the last story that we really have of, of Philip, where Philip like comes on the scene. In um, all of these stories, it's like Philip's kind of like a secondary character, but this is the last, like, the last little bit of Philip that we have. Um, and so just to set a little context, um, Jesus is its coming down to the wire. Jesus is literally about, he's about to be arrested. He's about to be crucified. He's about to die. And he's celebrating Passover one last time with his disciples. He's with his disciples. And we know in, in chapter 13, Jesus washes his feet, his disciples' feet, not his feet. Um, he washes his disciples' feet, and he loves on them. and And... But he also tells them a lot of truth. He says, he says there's, there's someone here who's going to betray me. <laughs> and if you're a disciple sitting there like, there's no way I would do that. It, Jesus can't be talking about me. But Jesus says, someone's going to betray me. And I'm sure Peter's there thinking, oh, "Who? Well, who is this guy? Let's, let's find out. And, and then that's where Jesus is like, Philip, I mean, Peter, you're, you're actually going to betray me 30 times before the rooster crows so Jesus, this is, it's coming down to the wire of Jesus' life. And Jesus tells his disciples some hard stuff. I'm going to be betrayed. <laughs> Peter, you're going to deny me. And that's where we come on the scene at chapter 14. Jesus is with his disciples. Let not your hearts, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's heart, house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also you, you may be also, and you know the way that where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And here's where Jesus exhorts his disciples. From now on, you do know him. You do know my father, and you have seen him. Okay, it's like it's the end of Jesus' life. Jesus is, is telling them how he's gonna die and all this bad stuff's gonna happen. But take heart. Take heart. I'm going to my Father, and I'm coming back. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And not only that, you know my Father. You know the way. Jesus is just exhorting his disciples. You know my Father. You know the way. In verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. It's Philip. You don't get it. You don't get it. Show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still not, do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on the accounts of the works themselves. It's interesting, like, Jesus says, I at least believe in the works that you've seen me do, all throughout my ministry, this whole time you've been with me, Philip. And I don't think, and Jesus isn't, I believe that Jesus wasn't really upset when, I mean, not like angry towards Philip, it was, I believe Jesus is more disappointed than Philip. Like, you can, you can hear that in Jesus' words. Like, Philip, how can you say, show me the Father? How can you say that? You've, haven't you been with me? How do you know me this whole time? Like, how, how, don't, you don't get it, Philip. How do you not know that the Father is in me? And I just told you that you know the Father. You know him. Philip, you know, m- most likely as a Jewish man, was expecting or desire the more visible manifestation of God. He probably wanted something like, I don't know, Moses talking to to God face-to-face or the burning bush experience or Isaiah in the throne room in Isaiah 6 or Elijah hearing that whisper of God's voice. Like, Philip desires a visible manifestation of the Father. But he doesn't get it that he's had it all along, that Jesus came... Jesus came to show the whole world the character, the character and the heart of God. And Philip, he misses it. Jesus came to, to reveal the nature and the character of God. Luckily, we know. I was trying to figure out the whole how Philip died. And it's debated among church tradition. But what we do know is after the resurrection, after Jesus found the disciples, all of the disciples, they, they got it. They got who Jesus was. Their lives were transformed. They all died for their faith. They all went and they were the church fathers. They all went and they shared the good news, the gospel of Jesus to the world around them. It, it, they eventually, they got it. They got it. And it transformed their outlook and their, their faith became real. And so, the gospel, according to Philip, okay, I, would, I would say that there's two different things. The first one, and, and we see this in, in chapter 14, the one true God has made himself known through the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. Like it's it's such a like out there concept that the God of the whole universe, the God who created the whole world, the God who is behind it all, the God who hasn't spoke in four hundred years until Jesus comes. God is silent. God is not with the people. This God has made Himself known. But the thing is, He made Himself known in this this homeless, stinky rabbi. This rabbi who probably didn't ever bathe. This rabbi who we read in Peter that he had nothing that the world should even look at him. He had no beauty in and of himself. And it's in this person that God has made himself known to the whole world. And then for Philip, it was so out there that he doesn't even get it. It's like, yes, I get what you're saying, Jesus, but just show us the Father. That would be enough for us. No. No. Like each and every one of us, God loves the world so much that he came to earth. He loved the world so much that he, he was always towards the world since the beginning, always going after the world. But he is so crazy about the world that he eventually is born of a human being and walks around among people and loves on people and, and, and says, the Father desires you. You can know the Father. You know me. And it's still, it's this out there concept. And I don't think that we really get it. Because a lot of times, at least I walk around, and it's like I don't even really have a relationship with God. I feel like, does God even hear my prayers? I don't ever really hear God audibly. But God, God is here. And, and, and he loves us so much that he's given us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. Like we can know the Father intimately and personally, and way more than we can ever even, even fathom. And it's through one person, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. The second, the second gospel um, that we can, the gospel according to Philip is, it is in our lack. It, and you see that in, in chapter 14 and chapter 6 where Philip feels like he lacks. Like we don't have enough food for these people. We don't have enough money for this huge crowd. I don't know the Father. I know you, Jesus, but I still, I don't, I, I lack. It is in the places where we lack that God is inviting you and I to, to depend on him, to lean on him, to lean on his grace, to lean on his all-sufficiency, to lean on his power. God is enough. And we do lack. But in God and Christ, we have everything. And we may not feel like we, we have everything in Christ. We may, we may not feel like... Um, we may feel like you know what, I don't have enough love to love this person, whether it's a family member or a coworker. Yeah, you know, I I can't love this person. I, I just I I lack, or I I don't have enough money this month to pay the bills, or you know, I don't even know where I'm going in life. I don't I don't have any vision. You know, wherever you lack, yeah, and there's no. God's not going to give you what you think is best, but God will be enough for you. God's grace will cover whatever situation you're in. And God may not show up how you may think he will show up, but God will show up. It is in our lack that God invites us to lean on him and lean on his power, lean on his sufficiency, lean on his grace. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was called up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses." I am strong. So, my brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, may you leave here in the full knowledge of God's grace and His grace that is sufficient for you. His grace covers you and covers whatever situation you find yourself, whether hardships or persecution, even calamities. Wherever you find yourself, may you be fully assured of God's grace that covers his sufficient, all-powerful grace. Go with God.